Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm still Stuart. <laughs> we both love Mr Natural so much that we felt that just giving it one episode wouldn't be enough. And we're very lucky today to be joined by Tim Roxburgh to continue our discussion of this great album. We were very fortunate to spend an hour with Tim talking about Mr Natural and all things Bee Gees related. I'm sure many people listening will already be familiar with Tim Roxburgh and his work as a radio personality and travel writer and also Bee Gees fanatic. And his excellent, um, which I, I've read quite a bit actually, his thoughts on, he does a top 20 of Bee Gees albums. If you haven't got that, we'll put a little link down to you as well. Yeah. So without further ado, we'll let you listen to the interview. Take it away. Well, thank you for joining us today, Tim. Really appreciate it. How did your relationship with the Bee Gees begin, your introduction to them, and just their music? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast, and yeah, thanks no for doing problem. the podcast. Um, that's, uh, it's awesome that, that you guys are drawing attention to this phenomenal back catalogue and uh, and taking it seriously in the way that it, it's always deserved. So that's that's fantastic. As far as my, um, my connection to the Bee Gees, um, it was, I mean, when I first got into them was when I was a child. I remember I lived in Malaysia when I was a kid for eight years and they always seemed to be on TV was, was kind of my impression. Um, and the Bee Gees were, were huge in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and so I, I remember the one for all tour cause I was obsessed with music and that concert video being on, on TV and, uh, you can hear my cat in the background possibly, but, um, and, um, and, and so I was, um, eight years old um seven eight years old and and i just remember the the image of um, the bearded guy on one side the bearded guy with the hat on the other side and then the 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 small almost frail guy in the middle who'd sometimes hold his hand to his ear and um and so that that was the the visual and then the the feeling that the music gave me was that these melodies were were just magic yeah, and so it, I'd have that distinct memory and feeling as a child of of n- always having loved music, but oh my gosh, this band, the Bee Gees, there's a there's a feeling, there's a magic to those melodies that I'd never heard. So um, fast forward a few years, um, 1996, we were a little bit late to the party, despite my music obsession, we were late to the party and getting a CD player. And so we finally got a CD player. And we needed to buy a CD to go with the CD player. So we bought the uh, the very best of the Bee Gees at the suggestion of one of my sisters. And she was like, well, everyone likes the Bee Gees. Um, let's get a Bee Gees CD. So we got that. And um, and I remember being so blown away by New York Mining Disaster track one. This was so different from what I thought I knew of the Bee Gees. Um, and then, you know, I knew Massachusetts and to love somebody. But um, then discovered the early stuff and making a decision after about two days of owning that CD that I wanted to own every single thing the Bee Gees had ever done. Um, so that's the discovery into the music. Um, if, yeah, if you want to know the the discovery into um, meeting them and all of that, I'm happy to answer that too. Yeah, it's fine. Well, okay. Sip of tea. I'll try <laughs> not to make it too long. Um, so in 1998, in um, so this is two years into being obsessed with the Bee Gees. Obsessed in a good way, not in a crazy, um, unhinged way. Uh, 1998, there was a Bee Gees mastermind competition nationwide uh, in New Zealand on, on a radio station called Classic Hits. 
Classic Hits was the the biggest music station in the country in those days. So, and it was a big deal. And this was to celebrate that the Bee Gees were coming for the one night only tour. And um, so there were preliminary rounds and semifinal, quarterfinal, and final. And it was as many questions, trivia questions, as you could get right in um, in two minutes, and then a minute, or a minute, and then two minutes for the final. And um, and so I I entered in it, and I and I won. Which was kind of funny because um, classic classic hits was not aimed at seventeen year olds, and so it was kind of the novelty that this seventeen year old had won. And the prize was, was uh, front row at the BGS, uh, the concert at Western Springs, and there were seventy thousand people there, highest grossing concert in New Zealand history at that point in time in nineteen ninety nine, and more than big front row. I got to meet them backstage. Wow! And uh, before the before the show, and I w- was so nervous as you expect. And was it three of them on their own or was there other people? Uh, so I was with um, a guy who became a, a great friend um, and colleague in radio, um, John Budge, and Dick Ashby would have been there. Um, but yeah, I remember Robin didn't say much. I remember telling um, Barry that For Whom the Bell Tolls was just one of the most amazing songs. I planned that. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to give them something a little bit different. So for whom the bell tolls, that's one of the best ever songs. So Barry's like, oh, thank you. That's one of our favorites too. And uh, and then I had a bit of a chat to Morris um, and said that Railroad was always one of my favorite songs. And he, he said, oh, I'm glad somebody liked it. <laughs> and uh, and then we had a nice little nice little chat and smiled and took some photos. And, um, and then I said, you know, I really hope I'll meet you guys again. And Morris looked me in the eye and said, don't worry, you will. I guarantee you will. And so I never met Morris again. I never met Robin again, but met you know Barry several times over the years. And and fast forward to the present day, I've interviewed Barry seven times. In, in conjunction with that radio competition, I actually got a job in radio, and uh, and still in broadcasting. And so it was that competition that that got me in into media, into radio, and uh, and in many ways I can go. Okay, well I can thank the Bee Gees for my career. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> very grateful. Yeah. So when was the last time you interviewed Barry then? Was it the Mythology Tour? No, the last time was two years ago for his Greenfields album. Um, yeah. And and we we keep in touch. Uh, I mean, the, the I was... Uh, when did I... The first interview I did with Barry, I was 23. And um, I'd stayed in touch with Dick Ashby um, after meeting them. And... Um, and then because I was working in radio and I, I was both an announcer and I was um, a music director. And, and so I was scheduling the songs for a radio station that, that was the, like the sister station to the classicest one that I won the competition with. So I was very lucky in that, that I guess for them that I was more than just a fan. I was someone who was playing their songs on the radio, being a younger fan who wasn't hung up about any um, backlash against the Bee Gees that had, as we all know, had existed. I guess that, that connected with them and um so yeah we stayed in touch and so the first the first big interview i did with barry was for the barbara streisand um guilty pleasures album in, in conjunction with that but i i listened back to it recently and, and I, I cringed you know because <laughs> i was so i was so enthusiastic um <laughs> which which i mean who could well, it's like anything in its practice isn't it it's it's getting used to it and <laughs> Well, it, it, it's that it's that I'd interviewed people before, famous people before, but this there was early early in, in the career with that, and uh, you know this is this is as big as it gets for me, you know. Um, and and anyway, we, we had we had fun. Um, the reason I cringe, I actually played 
jive talking to Barry at the end of the interview. I have a guitar that looks like Barry's little guitar acoustic. Okay. And I was like, what do you think of this? I went, and gave him my version of jive talking. I would not do that as a 41-year-old, but as a 23-year-old. This time you you do your rendition of the victim. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, I must have done something right because we we uh, we connected and and one interview in particular we did in London in two thousand and nine um, that he said was one of his favourites ever, um, and that I think was less um, less to do with me, obviously, more to do with the idea that here was someone who was interviewing him who was taking his music seriously, who didn't just want to talk about Saturday Night Fever as much as I adore the songs on Saturday Night Fever and have no qualms in saying that mm. I think that Staying Alive is probably the, the greatest song they ever wrote. But but interview after interview, he has had to answer the same questions about the same album, <laughs> the same soundtrack, um, the same story about the falsetto. And it, for him to be able to have someone who actually knew the back catalogue took it seriously like you guys do was um, I think it's a shame to say it was a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it was great for me. And yeah, so, so that's how it's been. And, and we've, we've met up various times and, and he is just the nicest man. Um, he's, you know, he's my, he's my hero, which, um, which sounds funny, but um, yeah, why not own it? So have you learned anything from him that sort of surprised you or, or something you didn't expect? Yeah, I've, I guess, um, I always think of Barry in terms of lessons of humility as well as self-belief. You know, I mean, he uh, he never gave up. So there's an immense self-belief. Mm. I think the combination of understanding that he's a, a genius um, while being blown away every time someone tells him that. And um, and that's the, that's the tightrope that I think a lot of extremely talented creative um, music legends walk um, the best kinds you know having having the, that paradox of maybe self-doubt with confidence mm. um, and they seem like they're opposite things but they they often go hand in hand the humility that he has for the talent that he has I think is a good life lesson and the never giving up is a good life lesson mm. there are always more things that I'd like to learn about the the songs you know I, I don't ever feel I've done the definitive interview because I'd like to talk to him for you know, hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, every interview we do, I mean, the last one we did was 90 minutes. That was good. Do you get the impression that he's always looking forward rather than looking back? Because Chris and I have always discussed things like why why we're we not getting box sets of old, you know, albums from the 70s. It's, it, it sort of stopped with Odessa, didn't it? And it didn't progress any further. Yeah, I, I think he uh, underestimates how good the forgotten songs are. Yeah, I agree. But then when he's reminded, as you guys know, you know, when, when I mention to him songs like Victim and then he can sing it, mention to him songs like Don't Fall in Love With Me, you know, which um, an amazing Robin lead, and then the magic of that, the harmonies of the three brothers, you know, from Living Eyes, um, the harmonies of the three brothers on Don't Fall in Love With Me with Gonna Be A Lonely Night, Nothing But A Lonely Night. And, and he was just like, oh, my, wow, you know, and he was getting, he, he's, he said he was getting visions and chills thinking mm. about it. It's to what you're saying is that he, he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about those. He once told me, I, I asked him, because he said that Robin always wanted to make Bee Gees albums longer. 
Um, this was a couple of interviews back. Robin wanted the albums longer. Barry wanted them tighter. Um, and Barry thought that there were songs put on albums that maybe shouldn't have been put on and that maybe they would, would have been better being concise. And um, and so that, that's interesting. Um, but then I, I said to him, well, you think about sizes and everything, the songs left off from sizes and everything, my destiny. Well, it should have been on the album. Uh, probably probably should have been on instead of anything for you. And 8557019 should have been on the album. Then you go to um, Still Waters, Rings Around the Moon is probably the second best song from that project, but it's, it's a non-album B-side. Uh, Love Never Dies um, could be the third best song from that project. It's also a non-album B-side. Even songs like The Bridge, I mean, they're, they're really good, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're, so there's, there's an awful lot of songs. I guess in the streaming era, it's, it's not that putting out those albums it's not like they're going to sell, but I think I think that it's relevant that people could find them beyond just being bootlegs on YouTube. And uh, you know, it's it's even there that Hawks deserves being re-released so that so that if someone's streaming, when I mean, the Bee Gees have got almost twenty million monthly streams on Spotify, it's well known that Spotify doesn't pay much in royalties. Um, but if you have twenty million monthly streams, it, it, it's handy pocket money and so for um it's more than handy pocket money if you've got 20 million monthly streams and i think um i think people should be able to find childhood days on spotify It's the best track on Hawks, isn't it? Oh, it's great. And yeah. My Eternal Love is, is awesome as well. And Letting Go. I mean, there's just, there are so many amazing songs which which are kind of lost. Um, Your Love Will Save the World, which was left off main course. You know, all these can be found on YouTube. But um, I think it would be, I, th- I think they deserve to be given um, a, a proper re-release. There's a song left off Cucumber Castle, um, and I think you guys touched on it. Um, who knows what a room is? Yeah. You know, the, this kind of goes back to, you know, the, the same story being told about the falsetto and Nights on Broadway and how did you discover the falsetto? And it's always asked by interviewers who have seemingly no knowledge that other bands have used falsetto, you know, and <laughs> it, 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 including that it's a, a very well-known part of, the black music tradition of, of gospel quartets and everything. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, the, it's, it's always asked by like bewildered interviewers and, and Barry humors them and then tells the story about nights on Broadway and who knows what a room is. has got falsetto ad libs at the end, um, six years before, you know, the please read me. has got some yes, falsetto read me. from 67 and, you know, so there's, um, that, that's kind of circling back to a couple of other things. Um, just that that when musicians get interviewed and ask the same questions, it's tiresome and, and it's refreshing if they can be throwing something a little bit different. Right then. So with that, shall we get into Mr. Natural, if that's okay? Yeah. So we could see that on your Roxborough report ranking, Mr. Natural came in at number 13. Was it nine? Nine. It might have been thirteen once. I, I've done two <laughs> versions of that. Two versions of that list. I um, 
I don't have time to update and do a, th- a third one because it's uh, way too long. But um, <laughs> yeah, one day. So when did you first hear this album? What's your history with it? I first heard this album, I got it in Singapore, actually. This is my first year of, of being an absolute diehard Bee Gees fan. So it's 1996, not long after buying the very best of the Bee Gees. And I've gone, okay, I need everything. And so in reading everything, yeah, I read, oh, there's this album, this forgotten album called Mr. Natural. And it's you know in between the first wave of fame and just before the second wave of fame and impossible to find. And I mean, this is such a flashback from, from, you know, how things are now. Nothing's impossible to find. It's, it's either on YouTube or, or it is on Spotify. Mm. Um, you'll find what you want. And, um, but in those days, no. So um, I, I was going on holiday to Singapore with my family. And um, what I'd do anytime I was any new place was look up where all the music shops were. And so I, I gave myself like a, a hit list in a map and all right, here's one on Orchard Road and here's one that's in this place and anyway so going to the different music shops in Singapore found this amazing music shop which had oh my gosh it had Mr. Natural and it had one because I couldn't find one in New Zealand at that point in time and it had High Civilization and it had Robin's How Old Are You so I bought four CDs four CDs in those days a lot of money that's all right that's what I spend my money on so um, so and it's associated with that trip so I had a week in Singapore and a week in Malaysia after ad- adventures sightseeing with uh you know with mum we go back to where we were staying with friends put put the music on and so those albums all take me back to just one two-week holiday in the, in the mid-90s so that's when i that's when i first heard but that's what music is it's memories as well isn't it it's not just the music you remember when you buy something and i know it's with me anyway yeah how about you guys uh, for mr natural for me it would have been Probably 80s, early 80s, I should think. Yeah. 85, 86. And like you, I was I was um, out and I saw the vinyl. And yeah. it's quite an unusual cover, isn't it? What do you think to the cover? It's not a bad cover. It's just a, it's indicative of a time when no one knew how to market them. Well, I think so, because they was like a, an all-time low. And there's no on the front, there's no picture of them. On the back, there's no picture of them. Yeah. You can see that that this was carried on with main course too. Yeah, exactly. They're not featured, and indeed, you know the famous story of sending out Jive talking on a blank label uh, so that so that people DJs didn't know it was the Bee Gees. It, I, I read. Um, where's, oh, I was going to say, where's my phone? Here it is, recording. I read a <laughs> review. I'll, I'll find. I'll find it here because um, I'm pretty sure it's roll, a Rolling Stone review of Mister Natural. And it, it's mostly kind of, it, it's not entirely scathing, but it, it's just, I think it's indicative of the problems they had at, at how they were, um, how they were perceived. Here we go. So the review starts, and even though the, the, the guy likes some of the songs, it's been difficult to understand how the Bee Gees can consistently come off so unflaggingly moronic on television and still make good music. And, um, and so this is a, the benefit of being, my age, because I didn't see them on TV in the early seventies, um, and and of course it's subjective whether they seemed unflaggingly moronic when they were on TV in the early seventies. Um, benefit of being your age too, um, that that you know that if you didn't see it, you didn't know, and the music was always great. They did a lot of TV appearances um, in the states 
in the early 70s. And if you go back and watch it, um, you know, there, there's always the kind of the hamming it up for the camera. They've done that since they were 12, 13, haven't they, in concert? We was looking in Australia where they'd, they'd do a comedy routine and stuff. And yeah. I think it's, it's sort of stayed with them, hasn't it? Or it did do. Yeah, it stayed with them and, and, and then um, I think played played better when they were um, in their middle age. But anyway, I guess, I guess the point being that, that if you're a, an American reviewer who's, who's not quite getting it, and if you're a record company going, these guys write the best songs, and they're great guys, they're, they are genuinely funny. But how do we market them? And they obviously didn't know how. I mean, they, that's why when, when visually they, they kind of established a, a look, like with Children of the World, put them on the cover. And, and um, I mean, they, they always had a great look, but I can, I can perhaps see why a record company might have been confused as to how to market them at, at, at the time of Mr. Natural and, and Main Course. Because if you saw that in 1974, if you'd have seen that cover, you wouldn't have known it was the Bee Gees, really, would you? Apart from if you look close, the writing on there. Because I was saying to Chris that even on the B side, if on the back side, on the back of the cover, they've put just the back of the three of them sitting at the bar or something. But uh... it's weird. I can con- contradict myself till the cows come home. <laughs> you, th- you think the, okay, in the early 70s, live footage of the Beatty. So it's so a Barry um, with that big white guitar. Um, Morris looked cool with his bass and Robin, the juxtaposition again, sort of, sort <laughs> yeah. of the, 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 the fragility. But the, there's a, there's an image there that could have actually been, been tapped. Um, you know, I mean, the sixties album covers are, are great. I love Cucumber Castle as an album cover. Yeah. Yeah. Two years on had different album covers, different parts of the world. So, so sometimes it's the tiny image that you can't. That's the one I've got, the little small. Yeah. And then, and then, and then other times it's, it's the bigger one, but they actually they look, they look awesome. I think it's more just record companies, not, not quite knowing what to do. And then maybe if you read a review such as that one, even though that's after the album's come out, that taps into a record company thinking maybe we don't put them on the cover. It's kind of silly. You should do it occasionally, like with Odessa. That's how to not put a, a band on the cover of their album, is to just make a statement at Bee Gees, Odessa, Velvet. Boom. You know. <laughs> but looking at um, chart positions, Tim, I, I see that Mr. Natural did better than main course. No, only in some parts of the world. Sort of around Australia, wasn't it, or...? Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so, um, so in in Australia, the single "Mr. Natural" um, was a bigger hit than "Jive Talking." Mm. That is in part well due to a couple of things. One, it's it's a really good song. Um, two, the Bee Gees um, toured Australia and New Zealand in 1974, and um, and so it's the the value of touring can't be underestimated. As much as I guess you could argue they were touring uh, the UK as well. I think that there were bigger stadiums over there. Or where you are, weren't they? The the fan base was um, was much sturdier because, as, as you know, stories um, oft told, but but by, by the early seventies, the Bee Gees were, were kind of lost England. You know, things are always a bit more complicated than the than the stories oversimplified to be. As in, you know, Run to Me in nineteen seventy two was Bee Gees' first UK top ten hit for about three years. Mm, so so they're back in back in the UK top ten. Also, my world just before then had, had gone UK and US top twenty. Um, Run to me was also a, a US top twenty. So those are really big couple of hits. Those songs. So it's not all dire straits, um, but their album sales were were starting to really drop. Um, but but you got four really big hits 
in about 18 months with How Came in a Broken Heart and Lonely Days and Run to Me in My World. So it's not all bad news in the early 70s. Things seemed to move so quickly that as their album sales were drying up, even though they're having the hits, um, when there is no hit for Life in a Tin Can, and then when A Kick in the Head gets shelved, um, that's why they're in so much trouble around the time of Mr. Natural. Except Australia New Zealand, going great guns. Southeast Asia plus Japan, going great guns. Canada, um, going great guns. You know, And um, the States, not really. And England, you know, absolutely not. Um, but you can't, with the Bee Gees story, you can never look at one part of the world and say that's how their career was mm. at that point. Okay, so 1974, they're doing the Batley Variety Club, the low point of their career, a supper club, um, which, by the way, plenty of legends had played, but but for them, the low point of their career. Um, same time, mostly a sellout tour of Canada. Same time, breaking attendance records in Australia. Yeah, it was never the same in one country for the Bee Gees or one part of the world. So we begin with Sherrard, and Dad and I are both of the opinion that this is one of the finest Bee Gees ballads there is. How do you think it compares as an album opener and just as a song? Yeah, I, I like it. Um, I've always liked it. I think it's it's got you know beautiful arrangement, um, Arif Mardin. I, I wouldn't necessarily choose it as an album opener. But I think that's what they were doing in these early albums, wasn't it? They were starting very sort of mellow, saw a new morning, run to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly not as strong as run to me, but it's, it's a very pretty song. I don't know whether, I mean, this might sound a bit silly, but the, the, it's, there's a very strong difference in pronunciation of the word charade um, for Americans and, and Brits. And, and so I, I wonder if that might sound silly and I'm sure it's debatable, but if you were, if you're trying to connect with an American audience, uh, the word is charade in the States and charade in, in England. I don't know. I, I just wonder whether yeah. that is going to make it stand out on the wrong way for an American audience. Yeah. But I mean, very, very, very pretty song. The, the, the kind of the, the circular nature of the, of the chorus. Yeah. Extremely pretty. Yeah. I like the vocals on this. I, I, it's one of my favourites. It's, it's funny how different songs, when I first got the album, it was one that resonated with me straight away. So, and then it leads really well, I think, into the next song and then that song into the third song. Yeah. How about you, Chris, with Sherrod? Yeah, I, I've always loved this as an opener. I think it's just beautiful. And I think that when you go from Life in a Tin Can, which I think is very well produced, but it's very American, it's very stripped back, it's very dry and it's very acoustic, to then begin Mr. Natural is the next album and immediately you can tell that Arif Mardin is in the room. It's luscious strings. It's, it's just beautiful arrangements. Um, we've got a, a gorgeous clarinet solo, which I think just takes the song somewhere else. Agreed. It's night and day, the difference from Tin Can to Mr. Natural. Yeah, they're, they're very different albums, but they're both um, American inspired, even though um, most of Mr. Natural is actually recorded in London, but a couple of the songs in New York. But just the presence, the, the presence of Arif Mardin uh, means it's a much more uh, it, it's a much more American R&B um, sound on some of the songs, not all of them, um, but definitely, definitely this one, which is, I guess I, I come back to and it's it's really moot point, but um this is a, a song that a, a band like the Delphonics or, or, or uh, the Temptations, if they were doing a ballad, 
um, would do, could do something like charade. So it's got sort of a Philly sound to it then, yeah. Yeah, it's got a Philly sound. But Life in a Tin Can is also American-inspired. It's just uh, Americana-inspired, even though they were all over the show as far as, you know, living in the Isle of Man for tax reasons. But they were touring constantly. They had much more of a presence in the States um, in the early 70s than they had in the UK. Two American-inspired albums in a row with Life in a Tin Can and Mr. Natural, but different types of American music. And so when you first heard Mr. Natural, did you know that it was with Arif Mardin, that it was like a precursor to main course? Did you have that context? Yeah, I did, because um, uh, being a, a music geek, really just a geek overall, but um, uh, being a music music geek, I loved liner notes. And back to the very best of the Bee Gees, they had great liner notes. I mean, I used to try, because I, I, I have this evangelical nature when it comes to the Bee Gees, of uh, wanting to convert everyone. And so I, I wouldn't just play Bee Gees for people and for friends. I would try to get them to read the liner notes. It's like, read these liner notes. <laughs> then you'll understand how amazing they are. So that was the context for me, that this is a good launch pad of transitional albums. I mean, this is one of the albums I think that would deserve a, a re-release because I think it would then, I think its it status would, would be a lot, people think a lot more of it. Yeah, it's funny how, I mean, just in my mind, how my impressions of how it's perceived have changed. So, you know, in the mid-90s, when there's a whole lot less internet um, and there's no streaming, that, um, so, you know, you're not, you're not, and the Bee Gees hadn't had, when I first really got into them, it was a year or two before the the big late 90s comeback. So in in New Zealand, um, sizes and everything was not played, um, unfortunately. And so when I when I was really getting into them, a lot of people were like, "The Bee Gees, really? Um, are they still going?" And and of course they were still going. Sizes and everything. It had three UK top thirty hits, and for whom the bell tolls was UK top five. It was um, smash in Ireland, and it was big in parts of Europe, and it was huge in South America. Unfortunately, in New Zealand um, and Australia and, and the states, um, radio programmers didn't play it, and I was too young to um, have any say because. Um, I also wasn't working radio when I was about uh, 14 at the time. But um, so the context for me of Mr. Natural is that it is this hidden album. The context now, it feels like, well, we've got a community of Bee Gees fans and, and the Bee Gees had that comeback and the legacy is secured. And even people who don't really like them or know much about them know that they're one of the biggest, most important bands in history. The, the, things were less settled in the mm. 90s. So, um, so the legacy is secured, and there's not. I feel like there's not a a, a semi serious Bee Gees fan out there who doesn't know about Mister Natural. Um, and I, and again, that's subjective, but that's the feeling that I have. I mean, when I mean semi serious, there's, there's not someone who's who takes the time to discover the back catalogue who doesn't know this album. For the general public, it's just yet another undiscovered uh, corner of the yeah. catalogue. Yeah. Looking ahead through the rest of the album, do you have any particular highlights, any underrated classics, any thoughts on the, the following singles, Throw a Penny, Mr. Natural? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so Throw a Penny um, is mostly terrific. I, I love Throw a Penny, and um, I, I particularly love the end of it um, as it transitions into Down the Road. Um, and I would like that 
that throw a penny for my children for my children going down part. Um, I, I just want it to last longer. Mm. Um, and in a in a way, um, I, I'd almost like there to be a, a rearrangement of the song, which has got a part of a part of that throw a penny for my children for my children going down at the ending. Give a teaser to that at the start of the song um, because it is it is such a massive hook. It's so good. I the, really the only part of the song that doesn't quite do it for me is the sort of dreamlike sequence. I'm the same as you. That's what I feel about it. But I I think I'm I'm somewhere else with that because I think that is not only my favourite moment of the song but probably my favourite moment of the whole album. I just think that, oh, is, really? that is like musical heaven to my ears. When when Robin comes in, he's drenched in reverb. I, it just shivers down my spine every time. I love it. Oh uh, well, see, I mean that that's part of the the wonder of. Um music and it's it's the one of the many great things about what you guys are doing is that um we all love the bgs but have different opinions on the songs that that we love the most or, or the part even in this case the parts of songs that we um love or you know in my case i'm like oh that that, that part is ruining the momentum mm. of the song it's your favorite part of the entire album and that's 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 awesome that's cool but um no I've, i the the production on this you know, like you were saying before, it is it is very different from Life in a Tin Can. That's an Americana album with country influences. Um, this is an American album or an American sounding album with R&B. Gentle, soulful influences. And then we've got some some rock songs as well. But no, Throw a Penny is is uh, an excellent song. And and I love Robin in, in that register um, for the chorus. He sounds really, really good. That part that you like at the end of the song. Do you think that was specially written to lead into Down the Road? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of common in the early 70s to to do songs that would go into each other. Stevie Wonder was doing it. You know, like the whole Inner Visions album um, just links one song to the next. And, um, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work in the era in which we're in, where people are less inclined to listen to albums in the sequence in which they're created and people listen to playlists. You think of all the time and effort that artists went into to sequencing an album, uh, something you guys talk about a lot. And, um, you know, like the Commodores would always end side one with a, a meaningful ballad in the 70s, a, a meaningful song with a, a socially conscious message. And people just don't even think about, <laughs> think about the, effort that went, the effort that went in. And so as far as the sequencing of, of um, Throw a Penny into Down the Road, um, I would suggest it probably came later, um, and um, and it works works well. But that ending, and and the entire song, the, the best thing for me is is Robin, the sound of his his voice in that register um, in the initial chorus, but Barry's voice um, first with the change up um, when it you know early in the song when Barry comes in in a, in a stronger voice. Um, but as I say, that ending. It's so good. It's like someone needs to, someone needs to do something with that song. It's too yeah. good to be mm. hiding. And it's it, what you said about meaningful ballads with the Commodores. I feel like we get a similar thing with "Give a Hand, Take a Hand" ending side one. I think that is such a powerful moment on the album. Yeah, so do I. Um, you know, there, there's. It's it's funny. Some of the reviews there that i found for mr natural over the years and and you can tell people haven't really listened to it because some of them will say it's it's the band moving in a in a more rock direction 
And I'm like, well, that's only it's a tough. stumbled across just down the road and heavy breathing. And heavy breathing is probably the heaviest song they ever did. You can probably count on one hand the, the number of BG songs that would be rock as such, even though yeah. rock is a very broad That's what I thought about the song as well. I mean, and I said to Chris, it's quite strange that that song was one of the first songs they recorded for this album. So you're talking November 73? Mm, yeah. I quite like Heavy Breathing. Uh, it actually could be sampled, the the intro of it. If, if someone just did a sample of that, slowed it down, I think you could you could create a, a pretty cool hip hop song on, on oh, just okay. a sample of of the the opening music and heavy breathing. But um, yeah, give a hand, take a hand. Um, you know, this is this is kind of gospel, or this is something that the staple singers have done. I mean, I think probably the the best song on the album in my mind is "Lost in Your Love," which is an amazing soul mm. song, um, which keeps keeps building. Had a lot of love last night is uh, is in a similar vein, you know. So there's some extremely strong soul music um, being done on this, and um, Dogs has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, it, it's been said by other critics um, that you know that in, in a positive way that it was Elton John inspired, and it probably is. That's what I've read, Elton John. I was saying to Chris that uh, I've read on the internet that it's it's a song that some people think is like the the transitional song that could be put onto main course or I think it's cause it's the, the chorus and the verse. It, it just works so well, I think. Yeah. I, I love the verses on dog. I mean, I love, I love mm. the whole song. It's, it's, it's dogs is um, dogs along with lost in your love are my two favorites on the album. Um, and, and it is like throw a penny. It, it's sort of loosely, slightly more than throw a penny, but loosely socially conscious. Um, and um so i mean it, it's it's semi about homeless people um but like like with many bg songs it's the feeling the lyrics give you even if you aren't necessarily certain what they're about um but i've always loved are you following me just like moses to the sea do you think i'll give you freedom in the end it sounds great in the context of the song what what does that specifically mean maybe i'm less sure but it sounds great <laughs> Well, what about you guys with the title track? I really like this. Yeah. It's one of my favourites. It was one of the few songs from the album that they performed live with Down the Road and Heavy Breathing and Give a Hand. And I think that as as a title track, fantastic. As a choice of single, excellent. But I always just think that if this had have been released on main course or Children of, Children of the World, then people would still be talking about this song today and it would still have been performed up until 2001. Whereas because it was on the album, Mr. Natural, which was overlooked, the song, as a result, kind of got lost after 74. Yeah, totally. And and the proof of that is that it was, a, as we were talking earlier, it was a sizable hit, Mr. Natural, the song, in, um, in this part of the world, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I mean, there are colleagues of mine, uh, much older than me, who who aren't um, anything like the Bee Gees fan that I am. So they're just, just you know, semi-fans. And um, and they remember Mr. Natural because they remember it being played all the time on New Zealand radio. So that that song, it's not like we're 
we're some weird country at the end of the earth. Um, <laughs> um, that's that song connected with New Zealand audiences. You never hear it on the radio anymore, unfortunately, um, and connected with Australian audiences. And and I totally agree. I mean, if you think just um, a couple of years later, the Bee Gees are so massive that a live version of Edge of the Universe makes the top 40 um, that, that absolutely Mr. Natural um, was could have found an audience in the States well, and I found so. an audience in the UK. If they'd have put Barry as lead singer as opposed to Robin, whether he'd done any better this side of the world, I'm not sure. Because Robin's quite a distinctive vocalist, isn't he? You know, there's people that really like it, others not, not so keen. And As time went on... Um, Robin's voice was was like a marvelous tool for the Bee Gees, both as a lead singer and as a harmony singer, um, because it was so distinct. Uh, but I don't think it was as commercial as as Barry's no. voice. And the the difference being that in the early days, you could argue that they were equally as commercial. Um, that that it's you know it's Robin singing Massachusetts, Barry had different types of singing which could be equally as commercial Mm -hmm. so if you think of you win again and robin does absolutely priceless harmony work as well as the ad lib so robin it's it's not just that this is a barry song vocally you know that that the harmonies are astonishing so include morris uh, in that too and um and robin's oh girl ad libs um sound great but the, the harmony work that he does is so vital to that song oh definitely it's still a barry lee and, and it's an amazing Barry lead. And I think that the Bee Gees needed for commercial reasons to be a, to be a, a 60-40 Barry Robin lead split in order to reach their full commercial potential, in my mind. Um, and this is not taking anything away from Robin's um, amazing, you know, his phenomenal voice. It's um, For Whom the Bell Tolls is a great example. So it's, it's Barry in falsetto, then it's Barry in natural voice, and then it's Robin with this astonishing top of his voice. Well, he takes it to the level, doesn't he? I think it's one of the, it sort of elevates that song. He totally elevates it. But I think it works best because it's not the entire song, in my mind. That mm. When Robin hits you on the chorus of The Whom the Bell Tolls, it's because it's, it's not the whole song. It makes it, for me, um, extra powerful. I mean, you know, back to Mr. Natural. Um, I think that's a you know that's a commercial song and it's an amazing Robin lead. Um, it's um, yeah, it, it's fantastic. But it's just the the previous album had flopped and so the momentum was gone. So it needed to be a phenomenal um, song in order for it to to work. And instead, it's a very good song and and um, and you know it's not quite jive talking. But <laughs> again, <laughs> that it was it was bigger than jive talking in Australia. So. But one thing we did notice, didn't we, is the fact that a lot of these songs are Barry and Robin compositions as opposed to all three. Yeah. Morris seems a little bit limited on this album. It's been said that Morris was really struggling, um, you know, with with alcohol at that that point in time. And we know that he, he battled that. He was very open about battling that um, at different stages of the Bee Gees career. That this was set to be one of those times. It was a, a difficult time for him uh, with the end of the marriage to Lulu. And also, you know, just there's no, if, if you look at the timeline, what they're doing in 73 and 74, there's no stability. Like it, it's constant touring. And then I think Morris was still living in England, but then they, then they moved to the Isle of Man for tax reasons, as I mentioned before. 
if you're going through a marriage marriage breakup, constantly on the road, but you're moving house, um, yeah, it, Morrison seemed to be uh, coping with that that so well. Um, but then he seems energized when they moved to Miami, and uh, and Morris's bass work was always excellent, and and we know that he could play anything, but yeah, it, it's a slight mystery to me that Morris really stopped playing bass after the seventies. I, yeah. I mentioned that to Barry um, a couple of years ago, and he, he said that was Morris's choice. You listen to Morris's bass on "You Should Be Dancing." You know, it's so good that there are some diehard Bee Gees fans who think it, it, it can't be him. You know, maybe it's maybe it's not him. Maybe they just said it was him. Um, look, it's my understanding; it's it's absolutely him. Just just listen to the the tumbling bass. Like it's it's he he was an exceptional musician. Yeah, so he he's. Um, He's not there a lot on Mr. Natural, which is which is a shame. And I feel like there's a couple of songs where he could have taken lead. I always think that maybe even for a verse of Dogs, he could have taken on the lead or a bit of Mr. Natural could have suited him quite yeah. well. Back to what we were saying before, um, you know, about the, the magic of Robin's voice so often for me is, is that you hear it alongside Barry's voice um, or you hear it after you've heard Barry's voice. You know, Robin on, uh, on the bridge in... Nights on Broadway, um, or rather, just the the pre-chorus um, when I had to follow you, but you did not want mm. to. Like, like, man, it stands out. Um, it's so good. So, Elisa um, from uh, A Kick in the Head, you know. So here's this this quirk of three brothers all singing a, a solo lead in that song. It's such a pretty song. I wish it was longer. I love Elisa. Um, yeah, and, and it works so well, each of them taking the lead. I'm surprised they didn't do that trick again because it, it's surprising that they, it only really happens in Elisa. There's very few other songs of theirs that they, they do that technique of having yeah, three of them. Because you know Love Never Dies, that, that's another mysterious one. Um, so listening to that, there's, there's that moment. So I've read where people are absolutely certain it's a Robin Morris shared lead. Is it Robin does some and Morris yeah. does some? Um, but Morris sometimes sounds so much like Barry on that. I think he sounds like John Lennon as well quite a few times in the way, I think he says, you made the little girl cry, and that sounds a lot like Lennon. Yeah, I can listen to that line where he's going, yeah, you make the little girl cry. I'm like, hey, is that, is that Barry or is that Morris? <laughs> anyway, he was a, a fine singer, excellent harmony singer. He, he didn't have, if you've ever seen the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, um, being about the greatest background singers of all time, uh, it came out about 10 years ago. And so it, it focuses on people like Darlene Love and Mary Clayton. So Mary Clayton, who who did the, uh, she's an amazing black soul singer on Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Um, and and Darlene Love, who, who just sang on everything in the 60s, um, but, but didn't start getting success in her own right until um, about 30 years later. And, you know, being a being a lead singer is not just about having a really good voice. Um, and in, in the case of Morris, you know, Robin and Barry were so distinct that he was he was never going to be the dominant lead singer. Um, but it is also the the personality and it's the ego. Um, and um, you can you can have all the talent in the world as a vocalist, but you also need the personality to want to be out out in front. You'd hear it more on later albums, like. Um, you know, overnight. Well, well, from from the seventies onwards. So each of those albums, there's a Morris moment. So you know, uh, Wildflower, um, eighty one, um, eighty seven. It's overnight. Eighty nine. It's uh, 
is it House of Shame? Yes, yes it is. Oh, no, that's Morris. Um, 91, it's Dimensions. 93, he gets two with Above and Beyond and Omega Man. Omega Man's a, you know, really good. 97, Closer Than Close, but also probably Love Never Dies. Um, and then and then with uh, Man in the Middle um, and Walking On Air. So so they, I, I think that was, that was a good use, usage of Morris, but I agree that there could have been a couple of other times, like with Elisa, yeah. to, to sneak him in the same song. Mm. Yeah. Because we don't really get any Morris or Robin. We get Barry and Robin, don't we? But we don't get any Morris or Robin. Just the two of them on a song. No, no. It, ex- except for probably, I, I said probably Love Never Dies. Yeah. I've never, never quite been convinced. But, um, you know, that's why songs like that, seriously strong, do deserve to be repackaged and re-released. Because yeah. there's, there's so many of them. There's, uh, there's just countless songs. I mean, that, to, um, to make it clear that I'm not... Um, underestimating the the awesomeness of robin you know you think some of robin's solo songs that are that are particularly good like another lonely night in new york to me another lonely night in new york is is the best of his mm. solo his 80s solo songs that that's the one that um, you know where where there's singers like the weekend and and um harry styles to a lesser extent on his last album which are intentionally sounding like the 80s there, there's quite a bit of um early 80s robin gibb on on those um, modern artists' albums, but I mean, as far as Mr. Natural is concerned, you know, the, it it is a it is a a good album, and um, I don't actually think there's a weak song there. I I, I like um I like how I say voices, which we haven't mentioned. It, it's almost a little bit um, twee with the do 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 do. Well, that starts off as one song, doesn't it, and it gradually turns into something else. Exactly, and and that transition is uh, it's pretty magic yeah so there's not a there's not a weak track on this for me we we had a little bit less to say about um can't let you go but i kind of felt like well the album's a bit of an embarrassment of riches that can't let you go on any other album would be the highlight but here it just so happens to be the weakest of a good bunch yeah yeah probably um and and you're right that that as much as as much as they didn't know that this album would actually be judged really well because this album for them represented, oh my gosh, we're in crisis point. Um, that that history does judge it well, because the the groundwork is laid. They never abandoned doing ballads. It's just they they found a way to incorporate up tempo music as well, and um, which is why you know it, it's not it's not that then when main course rolls around that everything's upbeat. Baby, as you turn away, there's there's a ballad and songbirds amazing ballad um country lanes and come on over a, a country songs mm. it's just that they also incorporated up-tempo songs um in a more r&b vein but uh, that wasn't all they were doing um anyway this is why this is why they're the best i mean yeah. they they're they're truly the best because who who else can have an overhaul which is seemingly an upbeat r&b overhaul and on that same album, have a country smash on it that gets covered by Living You Can John. And, you know, who else um, at the height of the disco era has a B-side, Rest Your Love On Me, which is one of the best country songs mm, of the year. I agree on that. Um, and becomes a country number one hit for Conway Twitty. Yeah. You know, they, they the, you know, funnily enough, um, in my mind, they, they, were just, they were just better than anyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you think now 
on slight reflection on the album, do you think on your ranking of the 22 albums that it could change? Oh, yeah. Look, um, as much as I, I want people to read my work, um, the, the <laughs> what I tried to do with the ranking of those albums was I was interested in whether there was a, a mathematical way to determine what was superior. And um, because there's how we feel about albums, but then what if we actually looked at how we feel about each individual song and then gave each individual song on an album a score out of 10 and then did like a bonus point system for an album which has got uh, a higher percentage of really strong songs. Um, and and so this was this was to try and work out, you know, Trafalgar feels to me like one of the best ever Bee Gees albums, but it's got probably the three weakest Bee Gees songs ever. Would that be Dreariest? <laughs> yeah, and 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 remembering and and when do I? But how do I feel about the album? Even though it doesn't have them on the cover, I I love I love the cover, and and the production as you guys have talked about is is pristine, and the songs other than those three are outstanding, um, and and showcases the brothers in different ways, and and starting with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart and ending with Walking Back to Waterloo. I mean these songs are majestic, but but how do you figure into it that there's three actually really bad songs on it mm-hmm. um, versus an album which which didn't have as many phenomenal songs, but every song was really good. So that's a long-winded way of saying that um, that actually there's no there's no easy way to rank albums, particularly um, by a band who I think you know all their albums were were really very very good. I mean, even Kick had some good tracks on it, didn't it? The abandoned one. Yeah. You know, I, I I differ to you guys in that I, I love um, King and Country. Again, it's good good to to differ because it shows just the breadth of the the catalog. Mm. Um, and and uh, I've maybe I might be a table for one in loving King and Country. I don't know, but um, I I adore that song. Yeah. Anyway, um, but so yes, I I could do a I could do another list that would have um, that would have that album higher or lower. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like like I. I, I I did it with all the maths, and then you're trying to make sure that you've given an a, an even weighting, um, so you don't have recency bias or or anything in rating those songs, and and then I've got Odessa is, is too low. I mean that has to be a top five album, but I I, I, I it didn't work with the maths. Um, too many tracks <laughs> on that probably. Um, but you know it's 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 how you feel about the album, mm. which is a complicated set of circumstances, which also, in, uh, all factors, which also includes the cover, which also includes that, you know, you, if I adore Marley Pert Drive so much and I love that America, Americana sound and I love that they could do that as well as the other kind of music that they were doing at that time. And so my feeling about Marley Pert Drive on an album with red felt cover means... You know, it, it you can just be swayed in different directions. When when you actually look at song by song, you're like, actually, I'm not so keen on that one. I don't know. You can argue with yourself over it. You know, kind of in summing up, Mr. Natural, um, there's not a weak track on it. It is, with the exception of heavy breathing, um, and to a lesser extent down the road, it is a a more R and B direction, but a more gentle R and B direction. You know, it's, this is not about getting you on the dance floor. 
but it is, as you say, that kind of lush Philly sound. And, um, and this was a band who were realizing that America was going to be uh, m- more a part of their future than, than England at that point in time. And that's why I think it's, it's really crucial to place it in the context of life in a tin can um, being an Americana album. Um, and so that that's the direction they, they were, they were heading in an American direction. It didn't mean one set, one particular American style, um, but it paved the way for the best comeback in music history. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think we'll, we'll let you go, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. I hope that was good. I hope I was vaguely insightful. Very good. Thank you very much. (laughs) <laughs> and um yeah we'll uh, we'll do it again sometime Definitely. but yeah keep doing what you keep doing what you're doing it's um it's really um important work yeah <laughs> okay then, tim cheers thanks cheers tim. then bye-bye bye-bye see you later cheers. that was a really fun hour talking with tim having gone through two seasons worth of the podcast with just us two Although we find different things to say, it can be a lot of similar perspective. So it's always fantastic to have someone else in. Yeah, and and to hear how somebody got into the group in the first place and and what songs they like and how I pipe on about things like charade. And then you hear somebody else's perspective of it. And I suppose you listen to it with different thoughts and everything. I mean, obviously, it's not going to initially change your opinion, but it does give you another perspective on different songs. And with you getting into the Bee Gees in the 70s, for Tim in the 90s and myself in the 2010s. So are you saying that I'm really old then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, actually, it was 60s for me, wasn't it? With Saved by the Bell. Oh, dear. I didn't say you were that old. <laughs> but it was yeah, nice it... to have a nice range of how all of us discovered the Bee Gees and Mr. Natural in different ways, but have grown to love it and have, I think, a shared appreciation of the album. Oh, Definitely. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. It's it's an undiscovered album. It needs reevaluating. Sometimes it is just worth remembering that this music I think that that's the thing. That's how good this music sounds. That it's nearly fifty years old. And some of it you listen to and like I said with some of the sounds in voices where it does sound very much of its time. But overall this is an album that doesn't sound forty nine years old. No, it doesn't, does it? But it's the voices, isn't it? They're timeless. You were surprised, wasn't you, by going through them Australian songs, how you would hear Barry's voice and how in 66 he sounded so much... Well, I particularly found when he was covering them songs in 66 how mature his voice sounded. Yeah. And again, we're here we are talking eight years down the road, in seven, down the road, in, <laughs> in 74, where we're hearing new sounds from him. So it, it's just incredible, isn't it, how different... And as, as well, whether he's bringing out different sounds from the three of them it's definitely a turning point this album yeah i've said before how the Bee Gees' discography and their career is peaks and troughs and it's there's a lot of quote-unquote comeback albums and whilst mr natural isn't really a comeback album it is certainly one of the most critical because without this you don't get main course if we're talking about the 75 to 79 which is obviously you took peaks and troughs this was definitely a peak but I think going through these podcasts and stuff, I find between 70 and 74, they did some of their most interesting material. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think with regards to the concepts, 
of Life in a Tin Can. Yeah, and the statement albums like Trafalgar, which is, as Tim said, that's such a statement of an album. And as much as I then love the 75, 79 period, you know, it's very commercial and and you're losing some of those concepts. Whereas 70 to 74, it is still, it will continue to be one of the most fascinating and underrated periods by any artist, I yeah. think. Yeah, I totally agree. The Bee Gees to Joe Public, if it's not the ballads of the late 60s, and if it's not the disco sounds of the 70s, then there isn't much else that people remember or recognise from them. Uh, and it, it might be then their comeback in the late 80s or things like Islands in the Stream, etc. But it's very rarely do albums like Trafalgar, Mr. Natural, Life in a Tin Can, do they get the limelight that they deserve? But uh, sometimes you, it's not the, the public's fault. It, it's the, well, I assume it's Capital at the moment, who they're with, that are not um, pushing that material forward. But anyway, so going back to this album, I, I I think it's it's up there with one of the best. And I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to this will agree with me that it's an album that that you can listen to over and over again. You get more and more out of it. So it's definitely up there in my top five. Leading on from that, I thought we could go through the results of the survey that I put out for rating every song on this album out of 10. Good link. Thank you. So this is quite an interesting outcome. As usual, I will ask you to go through from what you think was people's least favourite to their what was voted as the, the favourite song on the album or which song had the highest score. So, coming in at the bottom with 7.2, which song do you think was the least favourite? Give a Hand, Take a Hand or possibly Voices? I might have to get the tissues because you'll probably be upset, but it's Charade. Oh my God. Was the least favourite. Well, I'm hoping people listen to this podcast and, and, and can change their minds, but... Uh, so it's seventh place with 7.3. What do you reckon? Well, I've no idea now. I've totally lost it. It was give a hand, take a hand. Number six with 7.7, heavy breathing. There was then a joint fifth place between four songs. So there was coming in with eight out of ten was Down the Road, Voices, I Can't Let You Go and Had A Lot Of Love Last Night. Or had an 8 out of 10. In joint third place, with 8.3, was Lost in Your Love and Throw a Penny. And so that leaves us with two songs. At number two, with an 8.7, was Dogs. And coming in at number one, absolutely storming through, was Mr. Natural with a 9.3. Well, that, particularly those top ones, are, are, doesn't surprise me. I'm glad that Throw a Penny came in so highly. But yeah, I'm sorry for Sherrod. When the results started coming through, I saved them for the for the recording. I don't let you know what the results are. And I could see that Sherrod had quite a few people put in one out of ten in terms of rating it. I should go and sit in a dark corner. <laughs> Recover. Get, get your asthma inhaler back. I'll read out some contemporary reviews of Mr. Natural. From the 13th of July 1974 issue, Record Mirror perfectly summarised Mr. Natural. They say, The kings of gentle rock, the masters of simple melody, the governors of lavish orchestration, for some off reason they don't storm the charts these days, but Barry, Robin and Morris still make excellent sounds and this album, recorded in America and in Britain, has some typically lovely melodies. Sherard, Lost in Your Love, had a lot of love last night. 
This album was produced by the now legendary Arif Mardin and is full of delicious nuances and delicate little touches. Horns, strings, some fluent clarinet, but above it all, that slightly wavering, instantly recognisable vocal front line. The Bee Gees remain BG, bloody good. <laughs> That's a good review for Record Mirror because I used to have Record Mirror and the reviews there are always, um, looking back on it, they're very simple, you know, a few lines. So that is really good. In Rolling Stones, reviewer Ken Barnes says in the July 18th issue, Although the last three LPs, with scattered exceptions, seemed determined to prove they'd lost the knack, Mr. Natural is a different story. There's a vigour which has been missing from recent records. The Bee Gees seem altogether more interested in writing good songs and making good, strong records. The title track, A Natural Hit That Wasn't, has a perfectly enthralling chorus, an attribute shared by a substantial number of cuts. It recaptures the potentially widespread appeal of their early efforts and injects new life into what could have easily become a moribund situation. And then in the 1st of June issue, Cashbox says, As natural as its title, the Bee Gees' latest LP is destined to climb high into the charts and take its place alongside their numerous other hit LPs. The title track single is the key cog in this well-oiled machine, but there are dozens of places where the Bee Gees' unique harmonies shine through. The Gibb brothers wrote all the material on this disc, and each cut offers an interesting texture to the listener's ear. We dig, give a hand, take a hand, had a lot of love last night, and dogs. I don't know why they were surprised that they wrote every song on the album. No, they, always, they always do. They always do, yeah. We then had some listeners emailing in, and so Daniel Navarro says, This album was one of the first Bee Gees albums I had. It took me a while to really appreciate it, and now it is one of my favourites. I like how Throw a Penny transitions into Down the Road. The brothers actually use a formula seen in Throw a Penny that they used in the album To Whom It May Concern, and that they will use in main course. With Paper Mache, Cabbages and Kings, Throw a Penny and Nights on Broadway, there's a slow, dreamlike verse within the song. Staying Alive was almost released with one, but they realised it would ruin the song. Dogs is my favourite, and it has an Elton John flavour to it. I can imagine the brothers recording Had a Lot of Love Last Night in a dark studio surrounding one microphone. And then Mark Austin says, Mr. Natural feels like a transitional album where the influences from Arif Mardin are still bedding in. Highlights for me are Throw a Penny, with great changes of tempo in the song and a departure from the previous albums, including a great segue into the more traditional rock style of Down the Road. Dogs has an amazing hook where it transitions into the days get shorter and the nights get longer. No idea about the story behind the song, same for us, but a great vocal from Barry. And then Mr. Natural is a soulful vocal from Robin and great interchanges of lead vocal with Barry. And with all of that, that brings us to the end of our episodes on Mr. Natural. With a lot of the albums that we've discussed so far, it's always been a case of this is quite an underrated album and this is an album that we've not revisited much and we've had a sort of, we've both had a reappraisal of it. Barry's The Kid's No Good, Two Years On, sort of, uh, Life in a Tin Can, etc. Yeah. With Mr. Natural, I already loved it to begin with, so if anything, my love for it's only increased. Yes, mine has. Yeah, mine has. I, I, I as I said a hundred times, I, you can't, I can't find any faults with this album, really. 
And I think deep down, Barry must feel the same as well. He's got to be proud of these set of songs. I assume he'll be even prouder of the next set of songs as well. Good link. Very good link. <laughs> yep. So we've had the we've had the starter. Now it's time for the main course. Would you say it's an obscure album? Not spoken about a lot. Not heard of obscure singles. No. <laughs> Unusual stories. And a falsetto to boot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to get round to the album, which is one of, I think, one of the most distinguished Bee Gees albums that there is. Yes, I do. I do. So with that in mind, we will say farewell and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from him. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Is that it? Yeah. Excellent.